Welcome to Inside Parliament. It's our weekly catch-up of the political stories that we've been covering for One News. We're coming to you from the legendary TVNZ Beehive studio. I'm Jessica Much. And I'm Benedict Collins. We've had a fun, busy week. The MPs are back to sitting again. And one of the stories we covered was this whole issue of the Canadian far-right uh, commentator, shall we say, and coming here to New Zealand. So have a look at that track first. Hey, guys. Lauren Southern here with Stefan Molyneux. This is their promotional video designed to sell tickets. And will you become another victim of multiculturalism? They are far-right commentators with controversial views on race and gender. There is no third, fourth, fifth or 700th gender. There are two. If we took the brain of a 25-year-old black man and the brain of a 25-year-old white man, what is it that they're doing that... No, different sizes. Yeah. Yeah. Nuclear power is excellent. I wish I had a gun on me. They've touched down in Melbourne for a show tonight. Am I proud of being white? I'm happy to be white. Now they've been granted a visa to speak in New Zealand. They've just got like disgusting views. They're like awful people. I think everybody should have freedom of speech. Well, it's a tough one because I believe in free speech, but then I also don't believe in provoking people to behave badly. The minister says unless there is a risk to safety or they're in a terrorist group, they are allowed in. Even though the government finds the views of these two people repugnant, they are free to come to New Zealand and if they can find someone who is prepared to host them, then they can have their public meetings. The Auckland Mayor Phil Goff is being taken to court by the Free Speech Coalition for not allowing the pair to speak at council venues. Well, I think it sets an extraordinarily dangerous precedent where we have people in power deciding what we can and can't hear. This isn't about freedom of speech. Hate speech is not free speech. I've spoken to the promoters. They're still keen to come to New Zealand and are looking at alternative venues. They say the move by Phil Goff is pure politics and say that everyone should be allowed to share their views. Security for the Melbourne show is tight because of protests. The same can be expected in New Zealand too. So a really interesting argument there. Now, a development that happened yeah. yesterday, yep. they've now decided... Pulled Not out. to come. Yep. Yeah. So I guess that that, um, even though the immigration minister approved them and they were allowed to, mm. maybe they just thought too hard, too difficult, and they can't guarantee a venue. Yeah. <clears throat> but what, I mean, what do you think about this? You, you've got the argument, hey, people should be able to have, you know, come to the country and have views that I think, you know, the government the government said they, they find them repugnant, but people should be able to come here and say things a lot of people would disagree with or, you know, or might upset people. Where do you kind of sit on that? It comes down to the definition of hate speech. And I guess mm. if you look at it um, broadly, hate speech is inciting violence against a minority. Now, they hold anti-minority views, for sure. But I think that in a free society, as long as it doesn't cross over into that hate speech, we should be allowed to have access to alternative views even if we don't agree with them, and perhaps especially if we don't agree with them. And I was thinking about this. If they were coming to New Zealand, I'd be really interested in going and hearing them speaking, not because I um, agree with their um, racist and sexist um, views, but because yeah. it's important. I think it's important to have ideas challenged and debate and to hear differing Viewpoints, so I think it would have been interesting. Yeah, to have but them here. I guess it's also subjective, right? When you start talking about hate speech, one person's hate speech is you know, maybe not so offensive to someone else. You know, you're as 
going to have that kind of differing level there. But one thing that this story made me think of was a couple of years ago at Parliament, and we had um, at a select committee, and we had the spy boss, Rebecca Kitteridge, and uh, the Prime Minister at the time, John Key, there. And they started talking about Kiwi women running off to be jihadi brides. And they were saying, oh, maybe it was nine or 12, Kiwi women had left to go over to join Islamic State and be jihadi brides. And it took, uh, took the media several months to actually uncover through the OAA that none of these women were actually in New Zealand. They had Kiwi citizenship, but they had all left from other countries. None of them were here. And I always kind of think back to that and think, well, that kind of really ramped up fear and suspicion, you know, deliberately on the Muslim community here. And it was at the time where I think New Zealand was, you know, weighing up or about to send troops or, you know, people over to the conflict. And so it was probably a, a part of that game as well. But it's like, you know, that wasn't, that's clearly not hate speech, but it also deliberately you know, really deliberately ramped up pressure on, on an, you know, an ethnic group in New Zealand. And there's no doubt that they are being deliberately provocative and um, they're mm. not um, subtle in the way they put yeah. things across. And um, that's, I guess, how both of them earn their living is by getting people to... Shock factor. Yeah, yeah, a bit of that and why people click on their things and why people go along to listen to them. But what would... And I'm not sure if it's still going ahead now, but what will be really interesting is Phil Goff, the Auckland mayor, said, nope, you can't come to any of the Auckland venues. And the Free Speech Coalition said, well, no, that's absolutely against the law. You mm. can't stop people. You can't control what the public can hear. Now, I don't know whether that court case will still go ahead now, but that would have been a really fascinating thing to hear, to see how you can justify and whether the the state or the council can control when you are, when you disagree with someone's yeah. views, whether they're still allowed to have it. So yeah. I just think that the two Canadian commentators coming to New Zealand, it makes, um, yeah, it brings up a whole lot of different issues. So. Yeah, but, you know, with their, because they, they have travelled around Australia, but apparently they, um, there wasn't a huge amount of coverage of what they actually said at their meetings, perhaps, you know, there's a bit more... You know the the theory of them coming here is a bit more exciting mm. than, than the actual. It's perhaps an appropriate time to take a lolly because I feel like <laughs> yeah. I can't really speak now. Mm, mm. But yeah, and there were heaps of protests, so I guess that was covered more yeah. than that what they're actually saying. But I think with things like that, you you know sharing, we shared snippets of their views there, and they're pretty controversial. But hearing mm. them speak for an hour or a couple of hours, maybe. Um, some of the other stuff in between is a little bit more subdued. So yeah. we'll see. But another story that was really interesting and caused quite a lot of um, debate and we and got enormous chatting. feedback around this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. So here's um, your story that you did on um, disability issues. Have a look at this. Cameron Freethy's job is to help recycle Southland's waste. I usually uh, cut the cords, which is right at the back of that corner. And now I'm just managing parts of a computer. He's one of 80 staff with a disability who work here. And some are paid less than the minimum wage of $16.50 an hour. That's because of a rule that gives employers an exemption if the person has a disability, which limits their work. The minimum wage exemptions are a weird arrangement where people earn very little money for working hard and that's not fair. In the last three years, 1,500 exemptions for the minimum wage have been granted by the Business Ministry. It's actually never turned down an application. And One News can reveal that two-thirds of those workers are earning less than $5 an hour. For example, one employee who has Down syndrome and works in community service was paid 89 cents an hour. 
another employee who has an intellectual and slight physical disability and who works in manufacturing, got just 92 cents. It's not acceptable. Actually, we uh, know that it's discriminatory. It runs against the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. But for these workers, it's about more than money. I make quite a lot of friends and it's nice also to help other people as well. Good, because you meet a lot of people and you get to do a lot of things. We offer discos, dances, dinners out, um, um, get-togethers, really promote the social aspect of our family here. Workers here are also paid a separate disability allowance. Mr McMurdo fears that without the exemption, operations like these could become unviable. I suspect that they would just be at home. The minister's weighing up the options. When we make any changes in the space, we have to look at what the wider repercussions are. Uh, we need to make sure that it doesn't discriminate disabled against disabled people, that it's fair and that they are no worse off. Advice on the issue is due this month. Yeah, and, you know, we got enormous feedback on that, like we're just saying. And to be honest, I still don't know where I stand on this. Um, I think it's just... You know, such a fascinating kind of dilemma. Um, when I spoke, you know, with the guy down at um, Southland Disability Enterprises, you know, he, he really talked about how, you know, this wasn't just a job for these guys. It was so much more than that. It was a sense of community, gave these guys, you know, a sense of purpose. And, you know, even talking with them there, you know, hey, I get to help. I get to help other people. So it's about so much more than the money. But then when you look at some of those figures we had, you know, you've got people going to work and earning 89 cents an hour or 92 cents an hour. It's like, come on, you know, is this is is this exploitation? And I think the government's going to be going to have to be so careful about how they try to change this system because the last thing you'd want to do is to increase, you know, to say, hey, everyone has to have the minimum wage. And then at Southland, where I think you know they had 86 guys working at that plant with, um, uh, you know, intellectual disabilities. Mm. The last thing you'd want is for half of them you know, to end up unemployed and to spend their days at home doing nothing, right? And um, needing another carer there. Which that's is right, and, and that, that was a point that was made, hey, you know, if those 86 guys weren't there, if they were at home, that would take it another 86 people out of the workforce, you know, to care for them during the day. So really interesting sort of issue there. Yeah, I think we went through an interesting issue in the office when we when we get in these stories you're gathering mm. information and we'll quite often debate them amongst ourselves yeah. and test out the ideas and we heard oh 89 cents an hour that's outrageous of yeah. course they need to change it and then you sort of start collecting information and you hear well these guys um are, are, are working and going to work each day and um not necessarily um com completing the task um quickly and and things like that but going and contributing yeah. and having a purpose and having mates at work and all of those benefits that you see with coming to work, yeah. and you think, oh, okay, well, I can kind of see how that works. And, then. and often I think you'll be given quite a... Uh, and, of course, you're going to have a whole range of people with different levels of disability here. But often, you know, they'll, they'll have one project and, and that's, you know, their job to look after that one little area and they'll do that really well, you know, and, and it gives them great sense of satisfaction doing that. But then, you know, are you going to pay them $16.50 an hour? Can we afford to pay $16.50 an hour to do, you know, a sort of limited a limited task? And that's when it's messy and maybe raises the question, mm. does the government need to step in and co contribute if that's something that but, they think is important? Yeah, but they already are because a lot of these people who oh, aren't being paid the minimum wage are also getting a disability allowance as well. Of course, And then yeah. I think it's often structured their, their pay so it doesn't start eating into that in a lot of cases. Yeah, um, yeah so a real... 
a real minefield there, I think, for the government. Yeah, but I just think a really good issue and yeah. obviously one that's going to be really complicated yep. for them as well. Um, another st- story you did this week um, was on prison, so let's mm. have a look at that. September is tipped to be the crunch month for our heaving prison system, with the number of prisoners expected to peak. Where the muster's sitting at the moment, it's probably a 50-50 call whether we get through it or we don't get through it, but we need to be making plans to get there. And there are plans in place if the numbers swell. If we exceed the bed capacity, there's provision to put them in some temporary bunks, but then we have to be looking at court cells and mattresses on the floors and different places in the prison to try and get through this. When you're at the stage where you're so overcrowded that actually you don't have space for everyone in your system, you need to take a step back and say, have we got it right? In 2015, the Ministry of Justice forecast a maximum prison population of 9,700 by this year. But the actual number is way different, sitting well over 10,000, leaving the prison system having to cope with almost 600 more inmates than predicted three years ago. The leap in inmates has been put down to an increasing number of people being held in prison before their cases are heard by the courts. At the start of this year, the prison population was at near full capacity of 11,100. But since then, there's been a slight reprieve, with the number of inmates falling. But if the Corrections Association is right, that trend's about to stop, and it could be dangerous. There's always a risk if you're taking somebody to and from a, a prison of an escape, and then we're housing them in a court where the facilities aren't designed to hold people overnight. We've got a capacity issue in the system. Uh, Labor has not built the Waikere um, prison extension to the size that it should have been, and that's going to put New Zealanders at risk. But Corrections is confident it's all under control. Things are looking positive. Uh, If that continues, uh, then it'll be even better in September. Um, But we don't think there's any chance that we'll be using our contingencies, such as mattresses on floors or, or wide use of court cells or anything like that come September. We've got capacity of about 800 at the moment, so you know, uh, I, I think there's zero chance that we'll be um, uh, worrying about uh, use, the use of police or court cells or anything like that, or, or supplementary accommodation. A government summit will address reoffending rates next month, with the spotlight on where overall numbers go next. <laughs> so, September crunch month, you know, according to the um, Corrections Association. They think there's a you know 50-50 chance um, that we're going to have to start putting people into um, court cells and, and um, police cells and maybe on mattresses in gyms. But you know the minister and corrections themselves they're like no nope, zero chance we've you know we've got this under control. What did you think? But I think the takeaway I took from that was that the um, forecast this year was 600 more than the maximum forecast from mm. was it 20. 20- 15 yep. or tw- yeah, from 2015. So I just think that obviously there's not a huge grasp on the numbers and how much they're swelling. So I just, I'm just not sure whether they can be that accurate with this one as so well. So it was really interesting. I was talking to um, corrections about these Ministry of Justice prison forecasts, and they were saying because they, they do them every year and they jump around all over the show, but they were saying it can. It can be like within a couple of months, something can happen, like you have a new government come in with some new policies that can just dramatically affect where the prison population's going. Or you could have like a street gang, um, you know, like the sort of the killer bees up in Auckland sort of emerge that are doing a lot of street crime, rolling a lot of, you know, members of the public on the streets that's going to really rapidly send up the number of guys coming into the into the prison system. So it doesn't take a lot to throw their forecasts out pretty quickly. Reading more widely into that OIA as well, I think you just see how woefully unprepared 
we are for things like emergencies yeah. or a huge influx of people or you know a, a fire or an earthquake at a prison or something like that and it shows that we our prison population has swelled so much yep. that we're just not ready and it brings up the whole Waikiria thing as well yeah like they're saying in these OAAs like we've got no room like all, all we need is an, you know another you know decent quake or, or whatever to take out a prison system and we're in a lot of, um, just to take out one prison, we're in a lot of trouble. And in Christchurch, I think there are three prisons alone, right? So if you'd get another, I mean, it would have to, you know, depending on which one or if it affected all three of them, depending on the quake, you know, that would just be mayhem really quickly. Yeah, but I get, and the, con, the I think the problem that they've got at the moment is the numbers have fallen so much and the contingency beds mm. are mainly taken up as well. So any little shift, and you're going to end up with that mattress on the floor, temporary bunk situation. Yeah. And it's a nightmare. Mm. And it's expensive nightmare as well on top of all of that. Yeah. Um, another issue that's been bubbling along over the last couple of days has been um, the cannabis yep. issue. So what was your take on that? So, yeah, so what we've seen this week was, you know, pretty interesting. Um, you had national pull it support um, from the government's bill. There's been a select committee. They've heard, you know, huge numbers of uh, members of the public come in and uh, and submit on the bill. I think the government's basically uh, doesn't sound like they've taken on board any of the um, recommendations of the public. They have made they did make some changes though, or some amendments to the bill with Nationals backing, and then National pulled their support at the last minute. So the government's pretty furious about that. And National, of course, they threw up their own uh, uh, you know alternative bill at the very last minute. And I just think you know you guys had nine years in power where you refused to look at this issue, you get into opposition and now, oh, you know, it's important and we want to come up with this alternative, you know, we want to make progress on medicinal cannabis. And it's, you know, hard to see it as, you know, just more than a stunt. Well, it's fun politics at play because what you've got is, obviously the government's bill carries on to the next stage yeah. now, even though they didn't agree in the select committee stage. So that still carries on. But you've got... Um, National going away and doing a lot of work and a lot of research and Dr Shane Reti going off and doing his thing. On the down low. Yep. Yeah, yep. And, and doing all of this work behind the scenes. But you then have the, the members of the National Party sitting in on the select committee um, trying to critique another bill at the same time. So it's just this interesting behind-the-scenes look at politics um, and with National doing their thing for their... Um, big launch and this happening in, in the public, I guess, over here. Yeah, well, you know, and it is it is interesting politically, but you know, I think you've got to keep remembering that you've got really sick people out there, people in a lot of pain who can't get access to cheap, high quality medicinal marijuana in New Zealand. You know, for them, but they don't want to see the politics, you know, playing out like this and having to fork out huge amounts of money to you know try and get these products that we could be making here. Um, you know, so it's I guess pretty disappointing, you know, to see this sort of carry on in their in their perspective. And I guess the other reality as well is that national, um, no matter how good the ideas are, that it still has to be drawn from the ballot, and then mm. you have to have support from other parties for that to be negotiated. Yeah. So the only option on the table at the moment is yeah. the government's one. And it was just a few months ago, I think that you know, national also voted down Chloe Swarbrick's, um, the Green MPs alternative medicinal cannabis bill as well and it was, it was quite interesting at that time because you had a couple of was it two or three 
national MPs who indicated they wanted to vote for it. And Chris Bishop and Nikki Kay, and they said, yeah, we're going to back Chloe's bill. We think it's really good. And then, uh, you know, the National Caucus, which is really conservative, kind of, you know, pulled them into line quick, quick smart and they had to change change their minds and they weren't allowed to vote for it. So I think, yeah, interesting looking at national, you know, even in their proposed alternative bill as well, um, you know, they're still, you know, they don't want loose leaf. They don't want, you know, edibles. Um, you know, they don't want any sort of move towards recreational uh, use of, of marijuana. So still, you know, they're still really conservative. They're, I guess they're trying to find you know, a, a sort of middle ground where they can be, you know, relevant on this matter. And referendum is the next step, uh, you know, in the yep. in the process as well, going out and asking the people what they think about it too. So it's definitely going to be a topic that yeah, we're going to I think that referendum's probably it. shaping up for next year, I think. Yeah, and, and a non-election year. So more expensive, but perhaps takes the focus of focus purely on that rather than having an election where you're also focusing on... on yeah, because you can imagine, hey, like an election campaign, you, <laughs> everyone's going to be talking about, yeah. um, you know, assisted dying, David Seymour's bill and, and the, um, you know, cannabis referendum. It, mm. I think it would be a big distraction. I think it's one probably most parties wouldn't really uh, want would be my thinking at the moment. Yeah, I would, I think, and plus it gives us so much um, more fun things to focus on next year as well, so it's yeah, good for us yeah. too. It's good. Well, it's nice to see you um, eating the lollies. Mm. Thank you very much for all the candy feedback that we had um, for our podcast last week. We really appreciated it. Um, it's great to have you with us on Inside Parliament. It's our weekly catch-up about the political stories we've been covering on One News. It's available every Thursday evening on the One News Facebook page and check us out on your favourite podcasting app. We'll see you see later. You guys. <clears throat>